Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, good evening. Wasn't it a beautiful day today? I am praying that it'll be that beautiful next week when I'm in Israel. And I bring that up to say, hey, would you pray for the team that's going to Israel? There's about 45 of us. We'll be in Haaretz, the land, as it's called, the Holy Land. And we will be there, and we desperately and, uh, and definitely want your prayers while we are there for safety and also just that uh, God would accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So I have a little praise report of sorts. This, this, uh, this morning, my tribe, the Wallace tribe, we were in the minivan and we were moving along there. We took a little time to, to pray. And, and of course, Mariah, my oldest, wanted to pray first. And then, and then Phoebe, my three-year-old, wanted to pray. And, and then Selah, my seven-year-old, wanted to pray. And Bubba is what we call Malachi, our youngest. My only son, I call him my only begotten son, that is, my only begotten son, he, he quickly sort of picked up that at the end of these long periods of, of sharing, you say, amen. So that's my praise report that my boy learned how to say amen today. And uh, I was really tickled. I had a really good day in part just because he just kept saying that. And then Phoebe, of course, would say, amen. And Malachi would say, amen. And then Phoebe would say, amen. And then Malachi would say, amen. They were just getting Pentecostal back there. I tell you, I mean, we're driving along and they're just having a good old time. So uh, it's my prayer that tonight we're going to do the same thing, that we will uh, hear from the Lord and in our hearts we could really learn something and, and be encouraged and that we can leave together and say, amen, in our hearts. Amen. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, as you know, we're going through a study of Scripture. We're really going through a topical and thematic study of the entire Bible from Genesis through Revelation. It is the story. And we've been unpacking this over many weeks. And tonight we're going to do the same. And the title of the message is A Kingdom Torn in Two. And... Before we dive in, would you join me in in a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you and we open up our hearts wide before you. And we ask that by your spirit you would speak to each one of us. That Lord, as your word is heard and read, that you would do something in us. That we would leave changed in some measure that we would give you another part of us that maybe we haven't given you before. We know that your word does not return to you void, and so we pray that you would accomplish in us that which you want to accomplish. Be glorified, we pray. We ask that, Lord, as you speak to us, help us, Lord, be, help us to be the salt and the light that we are as the church. Help us to walk in grace and love Come speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So the passage we're really going to narrow in on is found in 
1 Kings, and it's in chapters uh, 11 through 15. And this portion of scripture is important for a number of different reasons, in part because it teaches how the united monarchy, or the single nation of Israel, split, and there was discord, and it became a divided kingdom of Israel, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And before we get into some of the text, what I'd like to do is sort of unpack what I call the covenantal context. See, the Bible is is not a complete and exhaustive record of all of human history, by no means. In fact, it's a selective portion of human history, what we call redemptive history. It is a record of some of and many of the saving acts of God and what God has done in human history to bring about salvation for a people and us as his people. And so when you look at scripture, you see that there are a number of covenants that God initiated with his people. From the very beginning, he covenanted with creation And then we see Adam and Eve, and then there's the fall of mankind where sin enters the world and God still covenants with with mankind. And then we see, fast forward, Noah and the ark, and God covenants with, with Noah that he will never again send a flood to destroy the earth. And then we fast forward a little bit more in time, and we see that God calls a man named Abraham, right? Father Abraham. That God raises up a man and calls a man and gives him promises. And he says that through you I will make a people. And I will send a deliverer. I will send a Messiah. I will send a Savior through your lineage. And then we see that there is a people. And these people become called Israelites. They are descendants of Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. And we see that these Israelites are... They become in bondage. They, they go down to Egypt, and they are there for hundreds of years. And then all of a sudden, the Israelites are there and saying, God, why don't you come and deliver us? We need a deliverer. Egypt is oppressing us. We need your help. Throw us a bone here, right? Come, send someone. And so God raises up a man named Moses. And Moses and Aaron and others go through this process, and they... Leave Egypt, right? It's the exodus. And one of the purposes for the exodus was that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, the, uh, the uncreated creator of all things, this God raises up and delivers this people so that they can go to a place and do what? Worship him, right? So there's this context of worship. And in this, we see that there's a formal arrangement, a formal covenant established called the Mosaic Covenant. And much of your Old Testament has to do with this Mosaic Covenant. These rules, these stipulations, these guidelines that were given between Yahweh and his people. And we see that after that, there's, there's a time of, of tumult. There's a very difficult challenge. But then the people cry out and say, hey, we want a king. We want a king. Give us a king. So God relents and says, okay, I'll give you a king. And they choose Saul. And Saul is 
the guy that looks the part, but who has character issues. He's got some integrity problems, and Saul doesn't quite work out all that well. And then there's this young man named David, who is an unsuspecting character, who is a shepherd out in the field, and he's called by God to be the shepherd of God's people Israel. But David had his own problems, right? He had some character flaws, but he was quick to repent. He really wanted to do the right thing, and he had a heart that did seek after God. So even after he made mistakes, he repented quickly, and he went to his God, and he worshiped him, and God found favor on David's life. And David's kingship prospers. And under the rule of David, God prospers the nation of Israel, so much so that David's son Solomon, when he comes to power, he is in a fabulous place. And there's a period of peace and prosperity. He's able to build the temple that David dreamed about and prepared for. And Solomon's temple is constructed. And as Pastor Al last week talked about the life of Solomon, we saw that there are two things that stick out about his life. That he had a, he had a reputation for wisdom, Right? God asks him, what do you want? He says, I want wisdom. God gives him wisdom to to govern God's people and to be an amazing king. But then again, there was a character issue that comes to the fore. And we turn to look at what we might call Solomon's demise. We see that Solomon's heart was turned away from his God, Yahweh. In 1 Kings chapter 11... Starting at verse 3, it says, He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. As the heart of David his father had been, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, And Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And he did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. And so we see that the heart of Solomon, this this great and mighty king, very influential king, who ruled, by the way, in what is oftentimes called the golden age of Israel's monarchy. The golden age, a period of peace and prosperity. And in this period of peace and prosperity, his heart is turned away from God to serve and worship other gods. So as a result of his infidelity, we read in verse 11 says, so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, which I'll pause there. Remember that the Davidic covenant was to be an ongoing conditional covenant. It was a covenant that God gave to David and said, if you and your kings after you will serve me and follow after me, they will be blessed and they will prosper in all that they do. It was a conditional covenant. And here we see Solomon drops the ball. He says, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, 
for the sake of David, your father. Listen to this. It's very interesting that, that God covenanted with David so much that to honor him, he's going to do what? I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So this is where things fall. Solomon is asleep at the wheel. And because of this, the kingdom will be torn from him and his line in part. And we'll see that here, this is exactly what transpires. In 1 Kings 11, we read of a man named Jeroboam. And everybody say Jeroboam. Jeroboam is an interesting uh, individual. He was a, a leader. We read of, of him in verse 28. It says, now Jeroboam was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. Now, what is the labor force? Well, this is in part because of forced labor and high taxation. Israel at this time had accumulated a lot of money. This labor force, this was forced labor. The king took men from these homes and said, you're going to work for the king and you're going to do it for free. And here's Jeroboam, one of Solomon's workers who's in charge of the whole labor force in the house of Joseph. Further in the story, we read that the prophet Ahijah comes to Jeroboam and says, See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes, but for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and the laws as David, Solomon's father, did. However, verse 37... As for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires, and you will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you, and walk in obedience to me, and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands. Notice the conditionality here, right? If you do this, and you seek me, and you walk in this Davidic covenant, What? As my servant David did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt. Smart move, right? Rule number one, if someone tries to kill you, flee, right? That's what he does. He leaves. He goes to Shishak, the king, stays there until Solomon's death. I mean, think about this. You're working for the king, and there's a prophet of God who comes and says, Hey, I've selected you to actually be my guy to rule and to be king. It's being handed over to him. What? 
What do I have to do? Tell me what I have to do. Well, all you have to do is seek me, worship me, follow after me, keep the Davidic covenant, observe these laws, be a good king who worships me and no one else, and you will prosper. In fact, I'll prosper you and you'll have a dynasty. What? What does he do? Sadly, he makes a very poor decision. What transpires after this, Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam succeeds him as the new king over the United Kingdom. And again, because of the policies of Solomon, the heavy taxation, the forced labor, the northern tribes were getting really frustrated. And so what they do is they come to Rehoboam and they ask him, and they say, will you consider lessening the hardship that is upon us? This is a heavy load. In your rulership, will you lighten this load? And so what Rehoboam does at this point is he goes to the elders, the council, and he says, all right, you served Solomon. Well, what do you think I should do? And so they say, yeah, you know, Solomon was a pretty hard taskmaster. You should probably lessen the load. So Rehoboam says, hmm, let me think about that for a while. And then he goes, he says, ah, I don't think so. See, he rejects the wise counsel of Solomon's advisors. He goes to his friends and he says, hey guys, we've, we've grown up together. We're friends. What do you think I should do? And they say, yeah, you know what? You should put the hammer down on him. You should say, you think it was bad under my father. It's going to be twice as bad under my rulership because I'm the new sheriff in town. That's what they're saying, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I think I'm going to do that. So he decides to follow folly instead of wisdom. I was thinking about this, and as we'll see, there's this uh, title of a movie, Dumb and Dumber. And and it, I, I can't shake that as I read about these two characters. You might see why, but here's Rehoboam who does something very foolish. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the, the advice of my friends, these young whippersnappers who've never really worked super hard. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. So Rehoboam says, that's my decision. And he has this guy named Adoniram. Adoniram go out, who was at the time in charge of forced labor, to go out and to enact higher taxes and to create more forced labor. And so the northern tribe officials and all the, the, the individuals around there say, you know what, we've had enough of this guy. We can't take this. So what do they do? They stone Adoniram and they kill him. And they say, that's what we think of your new policy. You can take that home, Rehoboam, because we're not going to have any of it. So, a riot breaks out. Rehoboam gets scared. What does he do? Hops in a chariot, which was like the Corvette of the day, right? You know, the fastest thing around. Gra- grabs his, you know, his chief officials, hops in the chariot, skips town, flees for his life. Then in verse 20, it says, When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned... Now, keep in mind, this is the northern kingdom who had just killed Adoniram. When they heard that Jeroboam was in town, they sent and called him to an assembly and made him king over all Israel. 
Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered all Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 able young men, to go to war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. So here we see Literally, ten tribes part, part from the south. And it's God's will. And the people are sitting there going, what has happened? We were one, and now we're not. Sadly, what we see in the rest of this chapter, in chapter 12, is that Jeroboam, the first act in his leadership, is to construct two altars, one in Dan, which is a northern city, and down in Bethel. We read of this in chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now this may sound familiar because when Moses and the Israelites crossed over, right, the whole amazing, dramatic event of crossing the Red Sea, and we see that Moses goes to Mount Sinai and Aaron does what? He creates two golden calves And he says to Israel, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It's almost exact word for word verbatim. And so Jeroboam is modeling the foolish act of Aaron and giving credit to false gods for what God had done and the good that God had done. Verse 29, one he set up in Bethel and the other he set up in Dan and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people even though they were not Levites. Now this was a requirement in the Mosaic Covenant that the priesthood would be of the Levites. And again, he is acting as if this is okay. In chapter 13, we read that the Lord sent a prophet to declare that these altars that had been constructed, that they will be split and destroyed by Yahweh, and that ash would flow out from them. Verses 4 through 6 tell us that when King Jeroboam heard that the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand 
he stretched out towards the man, shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, intercede with Yahweh your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. See what's going on here? God demonstrates his power against such a wicked and perverted act that his hand is the only thing he cares about in that moment. He is so spiritually daft and hard-hearted and obtuse that he cannot see that God is trying to get his attention. And all he cares about is himself in that moment. So what happens? We see that that the man of God interceded with Yahweh and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. You would think, at least most of us would think, that that might get his attention. But the amazing thing is that even after these incredible exploits, Jeroboam never really turns his heart to Yahweh. Yahweh gave him the kingdom, and he wasn't grateful. His response was not worship. In verse 33, it says, Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that leads to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. In verse 14, it says, Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal, and you have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it's all gone. Dogs will eat those belongings to Jeroboam who die in the city. And the birds will feed on those who die in the country. Yahweh has spoken. (laughs) What a word. I would love to have been there to hear that. Just look around. What's going to happen now? Those are strong words. This is a very, very, very sad commentary in the life of the nation of Israel. The direction that Israel takes from this point on is not pretty for hundreds and hundreds of years. The southern kingdom does not really fare much better. Judah also did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. In 
1 Kings 14, 24 and 30, it says this. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And there was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. After being the golden age, the high water mark in this period, it sinks to such depths, such lows. Remember that the Canaanites worshipped many gods. And the people of God were to go into this land and to be a shining light. Isaiah at one point says that Israel was to be a light to the nations so that the nations could look to Israel and go, wow, those are the men and women of God. Theirs is the one true God. And that does not transpire in this case. So what are we to learn from this? As we see the story progress and we see that Asa becomes the next king of Judah. And whereas Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his sadly, the kings after Asa, many of them, most of them, dropped the ball. The northern kingdom. After Jeroboam, there's Nadab and Zimri and Omri, Ahab. I mean, the list goes on. And they, too, do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. They don't destroy these altars that were for the worship of other gods. They don't return to Yahweh and stay in fellowship with Yahweh, but instead cling to their idolatrous ways. What are we to make of this? I can't help but think of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 11, he says, These things happened to them as examples. And were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not, what? Fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can be what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. One of the great lies of the enemy is that when we're tempted, we think there's no way out. I have to do this. I can't not do this. There is always an escape route with the Holy Spirit. Amen? There is always, always, always an escape route with the Holy Spirit. It's in those moments of temptation where we, we need to really look as the Spirit prompts us and gives us opportunities and knocks on the door of our heart to say, yeah, I, I want to go your way, Yahweh. <laughs> I want to go with you. I need to go with you and cry out to him for his help. As we look at the sad tale of Dumb and Dumber, as we look at this and we see just how sad 
a moment in the, na- in the nation of Israel this was. We can learn from it. We can see that there are a couple of different reasons, I think, for what happened and what transpired. And one major reason, I think, was the sin of syncretism. Now, syncretism, what is syncretism? It may be defined as the blending or blurring of multiple religions and religious convictions and practices. When you take multiple mutually exclusive worldviews and you blend them together to try to harmonize opposites, you try to shake the oil and the water to make it one, Syncretism can come in, and and don't make um, don't don't be fooled. Syncretism's around today. It's around today. It's a form of pluralism, which says that every religious conviction is equally valid and true. Uh-uh. No, that's not true. If everything's the same, nothing's different. But this is. This is a sin that they fell into. And you see that many of the kings want to toe the line and want to worship Yahweh and then worship Molech. Worship Yahweh and worship Ashtoreth. Worship Yahweh and worship Chemosh. And it just doesn't work that way. Remember the Ten Commandments. Remember the first commandment that the Lord gives is that he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is Yahweh saying this. Out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, syncretism is a sin in that it brings God from his rightful place as the sole One who is to be worshipped above all else. No other gods even come close to him. We're to worship him and him only. And syncretism is saying essentially to God, I will worship you, but there's something else that's worthy of my worship. And that is a sin because it's a missing the mark. It is not how things are intended. And many times people, their hearts are wanting to worship something other than God. Good things. We all do it. All sin in some way is attempting to make a good thing, a God thing, or to give it its wrongful place in our lives. So as I read this passage, as we look at this, and as I think of how this instructs us together, I cannot help but think of two conclusions. Number one, that syncretism and idolatry are the default position of the flesh. That when the fall of mankind came and Adam and Eve fell from grace... The default position of their souls and our souls that we're born into this world with is the desire to not give up the right to determine what is right. To not give up the right to determine what is the good. To not give up the right to be God and to determine things on our own terms. 
See, that is the default position of our souls that were born into this world. That's one of the main reasons why Christ came to live and to die and to resurrect and give us new life so that we could be engrafted to him, that we could have a new life, that we could be set free from the sin of idolatry, the sin of exalting self above everything else. That's why we celebrate at the table and we said, yes, we declare that Jesus, you are king of all. You are saving us and we are saved by the blood of the lamb. And we are being redeemed and redeemed every day. And we will pursue you and worship you and you alone. It's through the cross and it's through the work of Christ that the sin of idolatry and syncretism, idolatry in worshiping anything other than God, and giving that place, we can, we can, by the power of the Spirit, walk in the Spirit and live new lives. Lives that are not bound by idolatry and syncretism. The second conclusion, this is my final point. If we're not careful and vigilant and living a life of repentance, what I mean by this is that repentance is not just a single solitary act, but it is... As Martin Luther says in his 95 Theses, we're called to a life of repentance. Repentance is turning to God and returning to his will for our lives. If we're not vigilant in living lives of repentance that are crying out constantly and daily for his renewing work in our lives to change our disposition, the disposition of our soul and our heart to line up with his heart, if we don't have that, Syncretism and idolatry are not far from each of us. We need his empowering presence, amen? We need Yahweh to show up big in our lives. But he will not show up big in our lives if we don't cry out for him to show out, show up big in our lives. So as we conclude, in fact, at this time, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I'd like us to introspect just for a moment. What I'd like us to do is just think. I mean, you don't have to think very hard about it, I'm sure. Our own hearts are heavily laden. They're burdened. There are things that we do that we're ashamed of. There are things that we do that we constantly lay down at the foot of the cross. Things that vie for our attention and they vie for having center place in our lives. I want you just to think of those things. Something in particular. And I want us all to just cup our hands in front of us with our eyes closed. Just us before the Lord. And it's an act of crying out to the Lord. We just lift those up to him. And as we do, I'm going to pray over us. And pray for his empowering work to take those things and to break whatever it is in our souls that wants us to lift those up 
I'm going to pray that now. Heavenly Father, we lift up these burdens, these things that, that we struggle with, the challenges we have, any, any idols that we have. We lift up our hands, Lord, as a sign that we don't want them anymore to govern our lives or to have their way in our lives or to compete with our worship of you whether it's things or possessions or positions or relationships, physical desires, whatever they are, we lay them right now before you at the foot of the cross and we relinquish those into your care. And Holy Spirit, we ask right now for a fresh touch, a fresh touch of your spirit in us, upon us, over us, Lord, that your work would continue to break the chains that bind us because we recognize that you and you alone are to be worshiped. May we learn from Jeroboam and Rehoboam that idolatry and syncretism will always bring spiritual destruction. We learn from these things, Lord, and we cry out to you tonight for you to have your way in our lives. If that's your prayer, say amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.